Commentary is for general information purposes only. Clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Then the natural answer is that there is an opportunity to fix income. Now, of course, if you don't believe that, then that you need to readjust your portfolios to think somewhere else. You wasted 30 minutes of your time, basically. <laughs> Fixed income has surprised many investors this year by not only producing negative returns alongside equities, but in some cases even underperforming equities. After the worst start to the year in history, many investors are shunning the asset class, but we believe that's a mistake. In fact, investors should be taking advantage of an opportunity in fixed income that we haven't seen in quite some time. Not only are yields much higher than they were earlier this year for income generation, but should the bond market move the way we expect to over the next 6 to 12 months, there's also the potential opportunity to generate strong total returns. When it comes to investing in bonds, you need to focus on where we are going, not where we've been. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm your co-host and co-chief investment strategist, Kevin Headland, and join once again, with my other co-host and co-chief investment strategist, Makan Nia. Welcome, Makan. Hey, Kev. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? How am I doing? I'm doing not that great, Kev. Market performance has really soured my mood, but when you're in the middle of a storm, the better weather is just around the corner. So just plug it along. Well, maybe that brings us to our, our new segment in the news. And I think yours has, has a lot to do with that, that comment you just made. Yeah, so in the news, so our new section where we talk about something that obviously is in the news, as the name suggests. And one thing I wanted to talk about is it has been a longer bottoming process than what we recently experienced with COVID, which has many investors asking, at what point are we in this bottoming process? And so what Kevin and I did, basically, we went back to the 1950s. We looked at various bear markets. And on average, the time it takes for the market to really bottom is 240 days. The current bottoming process, so we're recording this on October 17th, 2022, and we're at roughly 200. So if we're using that as a benchmark, one could maybe think, and not that we're going to use baseball analogies, we don't want to because of the horror show that unfolded two Saturdays ago now, but let's not get into it. We're probably, you know, three quarters of the way through. I saw actually a really interesting research report, Kev, and it was on basically Bank of America did this study and they looked at a whole host of signposts that typically go check mark for the bottoming, you know, for the bottom to happen. And just to give a couple of them. So this is from Bank of America, their U.S. equity and quant strategy desk. So things like the Fed is cutting rates, unemployment's at a certain level. Are there more bears than bulls? Has the market, has the bear market rallied more than 5% over the last three months? PMI is improving. There's like 10 of them. And right now, historically, of these signposts, typically 80% of them are checkmarked. And then the bottom has happened. And this time around, we have uh, two or three of them. So that's also indicating along that has the bottom been reached? I hope so. But the data suggests that we're still a couple more weeks if not months of this bottom out process. And Kev, as you always refer to, now is not the time to get cute to try to time the bottom. We're obviously much more closer to the bottom today than what we were eight months ago. In this type of market where one may feel paralyzed in terms of how to invest, 
dollar cost averages up strategy to deploy cash in this type of environment. Yeah, and I, I hate to see maybe this time is different, but we tend to bottom, you know, where the data is fairly bad. And, and this could be one of the most predicted recessions, shall we say, from equity perspective. But also we could be like just kind of staying near this bottom, right? This sideways-ish market, because just because you hit bottom doesn't mean you, you snap back and recover, V-shaped recovery. But I would say, as you said, when the markets are have done what they've done so far this year, we must be closer to the bottom uh, than we were earlier this year, for sure. Mine is similar to what you kind of said. I think of the storm, of course, we've, we've had some terrible hurricanes so far this year. You know, one was even the one of the worst ones, I think, in, in quite some time, the Hurricane Ian. And it's about the used car market. Used cars have been really tough to come by, of course, uh, since COVID with the delays and new cars and whatnot. But according to Cox Automotive, which is the parent company of Kelly Blue Book, they estimate that there could be anywhere between 30,000 and 70,000 cars destroyed as a result of Hurricane Ian. So there could be a lot of interest in used cars uh, because new cars are still not available, but uh, interest in used cars as a result of the hurricane. So natural disasters, climate change, exacerbating some of the issues that we're already having, especially when it comes to uh, new cars and used cars. That's interesting. So uh, typically, do you know how many cars get destroyed in a hurricane or no? I don't, uh, actually. I don't have the data on, on average. Uh, the other thing was actually interesting as well is for buyer beware of those looking for used cars, they might be flood damaged. So, you know, five, six months down the road, be careful when you're buying a used car. It could In the United States, it could be flood damaged. And it, it's actually illegal to sell a car without disclosing that it is flood damaged and actually a total write-off. You can actually rebuild the car, but there, there's rules around selling cars that have been uh, damaged by floods. So let's transition. And the theme of this podcast is why bonds. And we don't have to relive the horror show that has unfolded in the fixed income market this year. I was reading actually something this morning where the 60-40, the balanced portfolio return is one of the worst in 100 years. It has been a rough ride, but that's what's happened. We are October 17th, 2022. And given the sell-off, both in equity and bonds, we know what the decision should be today. But when we talk to advisors from across this country, there's a sense of paralysis. Maybe not so from them per se, but even led by their clients. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of uncertainty. And Kevin and I were discussing the bond opportunity when we were thinking about the illustrative portfolio as of the end of September. We came down, we kind of wanted to simplify it. When things are this uncertain and there's a lot of complexity, sometimes it's just easy to simplify things. And we looked at the bond opportunity through three, what we believe are simple questions. And the first question is, when we look at the policies that were put into place during COVID, whether it was monetary policy, fiscal policy, or so on, did those policies have a structural change to the underlying global economy, whether it was through employment, which we're seeing some of it today, whether it was through supply chains. And when we go through all the questions related to that, Kevin and I come to the answer is no. Yes, it has created imbalances in the short term, but we don't think that COVID policies have structurally changed the employment market, have structurally changed supply chains. Early indications of that. So a couple of things we're looking at when it comes to supply chains, those global PMIs that Kevin and I 
always talk to, one of the survey questions, Kev, as you know, is how long is it taking you to get your products from your, basically your manufacturing plant to the end client? And to no one's surprise, this measure was increasing through 2020, 2021. And now over the past really four to five months, it's coming off. And this can be a factor. This can be contributed to a couple of things, a slowing global economy, right? Less demand. Also, when it comes to supply chains, supply chains are easing up. I know zero COVID policy in China is delaying it. But you think about even used car sales, it's impossible to get a used car before it. Now it's a bit easier. And look at your own personal life. So when we look at that first question, we don't think that COVID has structurally changed the global economy in the next five to 10 years. Yes, we're working through some imbalances today, but I don't think we're talking about those issues in two to three years. And I think you have to realize as well that was something we lived through that was, you know, exogenous shock. And as you said, it hasn't really changed, changed a lot, but it hasn't changed the structural environment, especially when you think about disinflationary forces, right? Prior to COVID, central banks were trying to get 2% inflation, where that's what we we're trying to get to from the bottom. It was, you know, we had no inflation essentially. And that's because of a lot of the structural changes. Now, because of COVID, we had inflation, but that should abate because the overall structure of the global economy tends to be disinflationary or deflationary with technology, demographics, aging demographics. Those are all disinflationary or deflationary forces. And then we asked ourselves a second question. And the question is, do we believe that higher interest rates can result in lower inflation? The policies that many central banks across the world have started since really February, March of this year, by raising interest rates, can we bring down inflation? And we believe the answer is yes. And a couple of reasons is, well, we're seeing it in the data. So for example, we've seen interest rates increase since March. You're seeing those global PMIs slow materially across the world over the last couple of months. Also, when you look at inflation, using an example So there's a very strong relationship with inflation with commodity prices. Makes sense. And that relationship's really held over the past couple of decades. Really, since the start of the year, we've seen a decrease in the commodity index. So the CERB commodity index, inflation has potentially pivoted. We believe if this relationship holds, based on historical examples or relationships, that CPI or inflation should fall. Another measure we look at is the NFIB raising prices. So in a nutshell, they ask small business owners in the U.S., are you planning on raising, decreasing, or keeping your prices the same? And this has been obviously increasing throughout 2020. Again, over the last couple months, this has started to trend lower. If the relationship with CPI holds, which is, and we have a note on our website that goes through all of these. So we encourage you to go look at it if you want to see the visuals. We believe that inflation will follow this downwards. And then also ISM prices paid. Again, you ask the manufacturers what are they are paying for their input costs, whether they're increasing, decreasing, or staying the same. Again, a very strong relationship. If manufacturers are paying more for their input costs, they pass along to us. At the end of the day, this has been trending lower. Uh, actually, had a much stronger trend than the NFIB. We believe inflation should follow. So we ask ourselves that question, do we believe higher interest rates can result in lower inflation? We don't believe that this dynamic has changed. This has been the case for all the previous rate hike cycles. We don't think this time is going to be any different. And Kev, I think you kind of alluded to it too, is 
Inflation averaged one, I think it was 1.6 or 1.7% for the 10 years leading into COVID. And you mentioned the reasons, big structural things such as demographics, technology, productivity. Have those factors changed? And we don't think so. If anything, we've aged. And add on top of that, one thing we've done as governments, we've done as individuals, we've added debt, massive amounts of debt. And debt by nature is deflationary. I use myself as a perfect example. So bought a house during COVID, massive mortgage in Toronto, and I've been cursing the Bank of Canada at each one of these rate hike increases for multiple reasons. One of them being selfishly because I'm a variable rate mortgage owner. And what my wife and I do, do we say, oh, we're not going to spend anything? No, we say if we had $1 to spend, we may have 95 cents now. That five cents goes to, you know, the good people at the bank. But that means there's five cents less in the broader economy in terms of the money supply. Now, take me, multiply me by thousands, millions of Canadians. And then across the world, you see the impact, you know, of the debt we've added and rising interest rates. That in itself should also help with inflation. One thing that I don't think many realizes is inflation or CPI is a year over year calculation. And it takes time for some of the impact of the central banks to feed through these inflation numbers. And it's a very delayed number. You know, for example, one of the material, I think is about a third of the CPI calculation is what is called owner equivalent rent. And and it's a survey asking how much do you think essentially you could get for renting your home or or property, uh, looking at shelter costs, right? Now it's those people responding have a recency bias, right? Because, well, if prices are recently higher, then I'm gonna say that I think I can get more money for my, or as much money as I can, for my property as rental. That's not factoring actually the decline in overall housing prices. For example, Case-Shiller 20 City Composite Index, month over month, the most recent data as of July, month over month was down 0.44%. So actually a, a negative number. So that should actually be deflationary essentially to the cost of shelter going forward. And that's only July number. We believe it's it's happened same thing of August, September. Again, that number is so delayed. So this data that we've seen, as you said, the decrease in commodity prices, the small business survey, uh, as well as uh, prices paid ISM index, we're already seeing a lot of declines and we should see more declines going forward as this data becomes more recent and we actually are calculating the current events. So uh, inflation should definitely be, be slowing, uh, maybe not as fast as many would want or, or, or think, but we're starting to see demand destruction. We believe inflation has definitely peaked and will be slowing over the next few months. And that owner's equivalent rent is not an insignificant amount of CPI data. It's 33% of that index. So it is going to be probably, if not the primary driver of disinflationary uh, moving forward. And then last but not least, the third question we ask ourselves is, do we believe the odds of a recession have increased? throughout 2022. And for us, this has increased materially. To us, it's not even a question of if we're going to get a recession. We're going to get a recession and it's likely going to happen. And the most called recession in the history of recessions, it seems, at some point early next year. The reasons we're saying that, so many of you have seen our table of recession indicators in the US. We take the view of it kind of like a traffic light, right? Red, yellow, and green. We update this quarterly and really throughout this year, the one was red was inflation. And we had a couple pop up to be yellow. Employment has continued to be the green. 
And then at the end of September, we actually downgraded two pretty big ones. Inverted yield curve, because it's been negative for three consecutive months. Historically, a very good sign of a recession in the future. And LEIs, leading economic indicators, went negative for the first time in the month of August. And on average, the recession happened six months after that. And then go through housing starts is likely to trend that way. Of all of these, the one that remains green is to the surprise of no one is employment. It continues to be very resilient, but not all of them have to turn red for the recession to happen. It's basically you're gauging it, right? And historically, when we have this much that's red, a recession is happening. And one could argue being down 25%, we factored in a recession. It's just a question of if you believe this is going to be a mild one, we may be closer to the bottom. But if you think this is going to be a severe recession, like the one we saw in the great financial crisis or in 73, 74, not our benchmark. There will be more downside if you believe that's the case, but we don't think that's the case. So do we believe the odds of a recession have increased? The answer is yes. And why does it really matter when we look at you know the odds of recession increasing from a fixed income perspective? First off, we expect the Federal Reserve is close to ending their rate tightening cycle. Bank Canada close to ending their rate tightening cycle. Uh, more importantly, the majority of the f- future rate increases over the next couple of meetings is priced in or likely priced into the bond market already. So the expectation that yields will continue to move higher is less likely, which has been the, the reason that bonds had a negative return earlier this year was the rising yield environment. So we believe that headwind is more so or more likely behind us in terms of fixing and returns. The other thing that's positive when we get recessions is yields tend to fall. And actually during recessions, the 10-year yield, U.S. Treasury yield, tends to fall by roughly a third. And of course, what was negative earlier this year with yields going higher and prices falling, if yields were to fall, prices will actually increase. And this is where the opportunity in fixing them is that if we do get a recession, we could actually enjoy pause returns, especially in higher quality, longer duration government bond securities. And I think, and not to sound, I don't even know what the right word is, facetious or cocky, but why do we own bonds? And The reason I ask that is Kevin and I, obviously, we run an illustrative portfolio. Kev, how has the bond performance made you feel? Oh, bond performance has been made terrible. It's supposed to protect on the downside. When equities fall, fixing them is supposed to manage or mitigate that volatility and mitigate that downside. And it hasn't done what bonds typically do when equity markets fall. And I think everyone listening in can explain downside volatility to our end clients we're used to it. We have practice with it. We really haven't had to explain fixed income, right? When these downturns, we have our equity selling off, but the bonds have been there to provide support and clients have expected that. And this time around, it didn't happen. And when we talk to clients, we say, listen, COVID was a once in a generational type of event that led to once in a generation type of stimulus. Look, look at our day-to-day lives. It was once in a generation. We we're stuck in our homes. We couldn't leave. Most of us, our jobs weren't impacted, and we were able to save more. So it just basically led to a lot of money chasing the same amount of goods, if not fewer goods because of supply chains, which led to disinflation. But sitting where we are today, you either have a decision as, as an investor. Do you believe that the historical relationship between equities and bonds still exists? So during a sell-off, the next sell-off, bonds will actually provide the support. Or have things changed so much because of COVID that bonds will continue selling off with equities? 
And we are not in that camp. We think that we own bonds for two reasons. Income, downside protection. Income, it's been there for us, right? Since the great financial crisis. Now we've been reaching or we've been adding risk for the level of income we've been gaining, right? That reach for yield with high yield. That's not the case today. You have, when you look at various bond indices across the world, they're paying you double or triple the income that you're getting as little as nine months ago. And then from the price appreciation perspective, again, with yields coming up, if the odds of a recession have increased, which is our view, and if rates can decrease inflation, which is the answer to our second question, then if we get that recession, as Kev said, one would expect if that historical relationship holds, that interest rates come down. So this is, I don't want to say the first time, but in the last 15 years, one can make the point that you have a total return of potential with bonds where you're getting not only the downside protection or price appreciation, but you're also getting the income. And we could put a case very easily together. Once you do that next, Kev, that if you were to buy a bond today, one year out, you can put down this thesis that you could be up anywhere between mid single digits to high single digits. Yeah, I think one of the things that investors maybe don't understand is really, well, I think fixed income as an asset class is difficult to understand. It's not it's not as easy as equities, I think, for most investors. And But when it comes to fixed income, one of the things I enjoy and I like about it is that it comes down to math, right? Essentially, what happens is that you, when you're investing in fixed income, you're lending a company, lending a country, you're lending them money, and in turn, they pay you an interest, and then give you your money back at maturity, at the maturity when, when the bond matures. Now, unless the company or government defaults before that, you'll get paid back. You'll be paid whole. Right now, bonds are actually selling at a discount for the most part. So you're actually getting less than 100 cents on a dollar. You're, investing, you're buying the bond for less than 100 cents on a dollar. Now, what happens is you get that paid the interest right now today. And then when yields fall, should yields fall, the mathematics behind it with duration actually adds total return. So I'll give you a very simple, simple example. This is, you know, very broad strokes about how bonds work. Let's take if yields fall by 100 basis points and your duration on your bond is eight years. That 100 basis points times eight years is equal to 8%. And if yields fall, that means an 8% price appreciation. Now add on to your yield or income that you're getting when you bought that bond, let's say it was 5%. Now you get eight plus your five, that's roughly a 13% return in that period uh, during that one year. You know, that's a very, very attractive opportunity. Now, this is a very generalistic way to view bonds, but I think a lot of people just look at it either as an income uh, monocon, like you mentioned, and they don't think about the potential price appreciation. And now we've gone through a, probably a 40-year bull market where yields only fell, so you're actually making a lot of money on bonds. And this is one of the few times when the yields have actually increased in such a short period of time that had a negative impact on fixed income. And a lot of investors are kind of, why do I need 40% or why do I need any fixed income in my portfolio anymore? I will swap it for something else like GICs or cash or some other instruments. And I think, you know, while those might have a place in a portfolio, completely replacing bonds with those other asset classes is perhaps uh, foolhardy um, because of the potential that exists in where we see things going over the next six to eight months, this is a very, very attractive and exciting time actually to be investing in fixed income. We have to ignore kind of what has happened over the last eight months and look forward to what's going to happen over the next eight months. And yes, it's easy to sit here with, let's say, new cash and say this could be the return profile over a year. 
but the vast majority of people listening on this line have 99% of their assets already invested in equities and bonds. So yeah, this is great. If I have new cash, I get it. What about the bonds that I own today? And depending on your bond, what indices you own, you're down anywhere between 10 to 20%, depending on the risk profile. Let's say you're closer to 10 to 12%. In the scenario that you are uh, illustrating, Kev, is it fair to say if I hold on to my bonds for the next year, year and a half, I could be up mid single digits per year in a couple of years time by not selling today? I think at least. And I think if you analyze the returns, yeah, I think it's very attractive. You know, some of the returns we're seeing, and, and this is where we're, we're even adjusting, you know, the portfolio manager adjusting their, their portfolios to take advantage of some of these dislocations of the bond market. And it's less so about looking at the overall index the individual opportunity that exists in specific uh, individual securities and individual issuers of bonds. And I think this is where our active managers are, as I said, excited. This is an opportunity they haven't seen in quite some time. As you said, we used to have to reach for yield. This is showing a lot of opportunity right now in fixed income. And I think if we go forward one, two years from now, and we ha- you know we look back and how well the, how the fixing market has done, I think we'll be very, very happy, even for those that have our negative returns right now, you know, if they hold it through to next couple of years, I think they'll be quite happy and we'll see that fixing them has done its job. Yeah. Cause that's a big one I get from advisors saying, yeah, we get it. Mark and that makes a lot of sense with new money, but what I tell my 80 year old client, what to expect from bonds over the next couple of years. And our answer would be don't sell. Like this is not the time to be sell- selling that. If you had that view, you should have been selling a year, year and a half ago, right? Now is not the time. It just so happens to be when we're near these like very extreme pain points, investors often do very silly things. And we, the data suggests it every single time. I think when it comes to bonds, this is one of those environments that yes, it has been extremely painful, probably has never been so painful for some investors from a fixed income perspective. But now is not time to panic. It's the time to understand what's going on to get a better gauge of what to expect moving forward. And I, I think it's one of the issues as well that perhaps investors look at the negative returns of fixed income and they kind of mirror their experience in equities. And when equities are down, equities can fall further. But again, in fixed income, it comes down to that mathematics and the, and the calculations and say, if you do believe that the worst from a rising yield environment is behind us, and that default rates in the corporate credit or whatever bond you own is is essentially non-existent, then the risk of having negative returns becomes very, very minimal, if at all. And I think that you have to understand that mathematics and really understand what what are the risks of the next leg down and a further decline in returns in fixed income. Let's go to that. So we have our view. We always talk about, and when we have our views, it's a 70-30, right? We put, we put a probability of... 60 to 70 will be right. And then the other is wrong. Where are we wrong, Kev? Where are we wrong where I buy a new bond today and in a year time, I'm down 10% again. And I think the answer is pretty easy, right? Like It's it's extremely low. And the only way is that the central banks continue to raise rates and go way higher than anybody expects today. Based on inflation that is at levels today. And if in this scenario that we're painting, inflation doesn't just stay at eight. Inflation finds a next like upwards. Moves higher. So, right, inflation moves higher for whatever that reason is. In Inflation moves higher in an environment where the global economy is slowing because of higher rates, forcing central banks to go from even current projections to even more. 
And when we look at the data, again, we think it could happen, obviously, but we would put a low probability event of less than probably 10 to 20% on that. Whereas some clients are thinking it's 50% or plus. And it comes back to the, the questions, right? You, you said it, you know, ask yourself, do you believe that, you know, the worst is behind us? Do you believe that we're close to the end of uh, rising yields? Do you believe that inflation is likely going to continue slow? Do you believe we're at risk of a, uh, increased risk of recession? If you are on that side of the conversation, then the natural answer is that there is an opportunity to fix income. Now, of course, if you don't believe that, you might need to readjust your portfolios. We just else. wasted 30 minutes of your time, basically. <laughs> so that you know, that's our views on fixed income. You know, that's our views when we look at uh, opportunity there. And I, I think it's something we have to reevaluate and realize that, as Makan said, this is not the time to sell. This will be selling low, essentially, which, of course, we know is not the right move for any investment opportunity. And let's say that scenario unfolds where inflation ticks up higher, rates have to tick up higher. One could make a point that your returns are going to be better than what they were over the last 12 months, because now, at least from that total return perspective, you have income to support some of that downside protection uh, with new investments. So we don't think that's going to be the case. We think all the signs are showing. It's not a question of whether inflation is going to come down. It is going to come down. The questions are how quickly and to what level. And in either of those levels, it's a good opportunity for bonds. Yeah, I think it's a great way to, way to end it. I, I think, again, if you want more information on the case for bonds, why we should be owning fixed income in this environment, you know, please reach out to your Manly Investment Management Wholesaler. You know, we can speak to why the need for bonds. We're going to be doing more and more support for why owning bonds, but don't discount bonds in a portfolio. Look at the, the opportunity going forward, not necessarily where you've been. So once again, for Investments Unplugged, I'm Kevin Headland. And I'm Alcon Nia. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Take care. Bye. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.